I'm simply pointing out for those that did view the clean power plan as the centerpiece action to address climate change, that when you did the analysis to determine its actual impact, those outcomes fell significantly short. If you're asking me, I think the previous administration exceeded its legal authority and they were trying to implement a rule in a way that was inconsistent with the direction of Congress and that the agency did not have the authority to implement. I have so much to say. The crap about like imposing all these costs and all that, that didn't happen. Energy continues to be like reasonably priced. We created a lot of jobs under Obama despite, you know, all the regulations that we put in place. So I just want people to know that because that stuff drives me nuts. Scott Pruitt has resigned as head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Former coal lobbyist Andrew Wheeler is stepping in as acting administrator. And we have Mandy Gunasekara, Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator at the U.S. EPA Office of Air and Radiation in our studio to discuss the EPA's ongoing set of priorities in the wake of the leadership shakeup. Hello and welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. I'm Julia Piper, Senior Editor at Green Tech Media. And as always, I'm joined by our Republican co-host, Shane Skelton, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. We also have our Democrat, Brandon Hurlbut, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. Usually, we're all coming to you from our recording studio in Los Angeles, but this week it's a little different. Shane and I are here in L.A., and Brandon is on the road. He's dialing into the show from Washington, D.C. Hey, Brandon, how are things in the nation's capital? They're hot, wet, and swampy, but a little less swampy after yesterday. You know what, Brandon? I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that because... We've heard so much from you guys about the swamp and and Administrator Pruitt. And then like eight seconds after he resigned, we started hearing these same talking points about Andrew Wheeler. So what I'm hoping is that anyone on the energy and environmental left might start talking a little bit about policy rather than auditing expense reports. But I guess we'll see where this goes, huh? Can't wait to talk policy today on the show. All right. Scott Pruitt is indeed out of the EPA. He stepped down this week. We are recording here on a Friday. Pruitt's departure follows months of negative news reports on his unusually high travel and security expenses, including a $43,000 private phone booth. Reports also show Pruitt rented a condo linked to energy lobbyists on favorable terms. He's also been accused of leveraging staff aides time to get his wife a job. And these are all accusations that are now currently under investigation. There are some dozen or so investigations into Pruitt, which we understand will continue um, despite his departure. But this week, we learned President Trump still thinks of Scott Pruitt on favorable terms. He tweeted about Pruitt's resignation, praising the former administrator for his, quote, outstanding work at the agency. He also noted that Deputy Administrator Andrew Wheeler will become the acting head of the EPA. President Trump tweeted that he has no doubt Andrew Wheeler will continue on with our great and lasting EPA agenda. And the agenda so far has been uh, to roll back regulations. There have been scores that the EPA has sought to either put a hold on or actually repeal, uh, including the Obama administration's clean power plan to limit carbon pollution from power plants. 
He's also attempted to put a stall on uh, corporate average fuel economy standards, vehicle emission standards. And we'll delve into more of that shortly. But I want to introduce our very special guest. Mandy Gunasikara is the Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator at the U.S. EPA Office of Air and Radiation. Uh, we are so lucky to have her on the show today. Mandy, thank you so much for coming in on your vacation week. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. So usually we start our show with some discussion of some latest headlines, but because you're here, Mandy, we're going to jump right into the conversation, especially in light of the recent news. So for a little more background, Mandy became a senior policy advisor to former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt in March of 2017. She advised Pruitt on air and climate issues. Prior to joining the EPA, Mandy served as a majority counsel for former Environment and Public Works Chairman James Inhofe, a Republican from Oklahoma. That was from 2015 to 2017. After that, she worked for Senator John Barrasso, Republican from Wyoming, who took over the mantle as Environment and Public Works Chairman. And that was right up until you joined the EPA. That's right. Great. And it's worth noting there's a lot of Inhofe alumni at the EPA. Andrew Wheeler, who's now stepping into the administrator role, at least temporarily, is an Inhofe, uh, former Inhofe staffer. Uh, Pruitt's chief of staff, Ryan Jackson, also used to work for Senator Inhofe. So just adding that there for some context. So... We're not going to ask you to comment on the recent allegations against Scott Pruitt, Mandy. Um, I know that it's probably not right up in your wheelhouse. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, th I think that's fair. I'm, I'm more of a, or I am a policy person and not have not been involved in what I'd characterize as the oversight components of Administrator Pruitt's tenure. So we'll put that to the side, but I would like to ask you about the EPA priorities in the wake of Pruitt's departure. I know this has all happened pretty soon, but how would you characterize what the EPA is going to try to do without Pruitt. Do you think there will be a change in tone? What are you trying to achieve? How would you describe your mission statement at this point? So I don't think much will actually change. I think that the way it's characterized, it may be put in different terms. What Administrator Pruitt characterized it as a back-to-basics agenda, and that stems from his commitment to the statute. In my space, I focus on air programs that the agency is responsible for implementing. So that's the Clean Air Act. There's the Clean Water Act, and you can go from there. But his Back to Basics agenda was a commitment to what is the statutory authority Congress has granted EPA to fulfill its mission of protecting the environment and public health. And we'll work from there. Now, it's, it's different than what you saw in the previous administration because a lot of the criticism was that the previous administration took EPA and expanded its statutory authority and its original mission to be the climate crusader. I'm going to talk in political terms here a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's a political podcast. That's fair all game. All right. All right. So it's fair game. So his, his approach was to take it back to its original mission, consistent with conservative ideals and a reestablishment of balance in that process. So whether we're talking about national ambient air quality standards and the implementation of that, if we're talking about the control of methane, new source performance standards, and how we control emissions from power plants, all of that will still be filtered from the perspective of a conservative mindset, but consistent with the statutory authority granted to us and the mission of protecting environment and health. So you mentioned President Obama being framed as a climate crusader. So there's a feeling that during his tenure, he just stepped too far with the regulatory agenda. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. So I guess to many Americans, especially those on the left, some of those actions under Obama were warranted. That's what the science would dictate was necessary to, say, combat climate change or just to clean up local air quality or, or, or water. 
I know that the current EPA and many people work there, I think yourself included, are environmentalists. How do you square a deregulatory agenda being less strict on some of the air and water rules and being environmentalist? Presumably stricter would be better for public health and pollution. So how do you square those two things? So a couple different things. The way the way that we looked at it, what's the point in being stricter if it's not advancing tangible outcomes? That's one place that we start. So in the context of the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, we inherited a new standard that was set and we've been charged with implementing it. And the way that you implement it is you designate different areas around the country as either an attainment or non-attainment. And then the states set out state implementation plans to lay out the path by which they're going to achieve that bolstering the role of the states in that context is really important. And that was another key focus of Administrator Pruitt's tenure that I think will continue through under Acting Administrator Wheeler, I have to get used to saying that, is prioritizing the role of states and their voice in determining what is the best and most effective environmental path forward. Whether you're talking about water quality or air quality, what you saw a lot in the previous administration, it was characterized and encompassed as we're doing what needs to be done in the context of climate change. But what it actually did was it encroached in historical authorities that were best set and best implemented from the state's perspective. So is that really what this clash comes down to? Everyone wants the same things. It's just how it's implemented. Because it seems like getting to that point falls short of what the actual outcomes will be. Because one set of rules will be more lenient for industry, fossil fuel industry in particular. And one set of rules will be more uh, stringent. And ultimately, there will be a set of carbon emissions or other pollutants that get emitted into the air. Can we get to the same exact levels with these pulling these different regulatory measures, more states action, less state action, seems like at the end of the day, there will be a more or less environmentally friendly position. Joy, can I jump in on that for a sec? Because I think one of the things lost in this is that aside from the Trump EPA's goals compared to the Obama EPA's goals, is Mandy hit on this earlier, is what the statute permits. And so I think what a lot of people would say is the Obama administration prior to the Clean Power Plan acknowledged that the statute didn't really permit some of the actions they wanted to take, which is why they pursued cap and trade. So I think the the question about are you doing it right, are you being too easy on industry, are you being too hard on industry, kind of skips over the fact that you can't do this. You don't have the right to do it. You don't have the ability to do it. And so can you get back on track with what you can do? And maybe Congress can get to resolving the issues that haven't been resolved in statute. I don't know if Mandy agrees with that, but that's always how I've looked at it is there might be a great opportunity to to meet a shared goal through good legislation, but the Clean Air Act just isn't that vehicle. Yeah. I What I would add to- Didn't the Supreme Court give, like, mandate that the EPA regulate greenhouse gas emissions? No, I, I would I would answer that is that's that's a constant misinterpretation of what the Supreme Court decided. What you're referring to is Massachusetts versus EPA decision in 2007 came down. What it said is that carbon dioxide could be treated as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act and EPA could make a choice. If EPA made the choice that it is an endangerment and there's a contribution of that endangerment to public health and the environment, then the EPA would implement regulatory programs to enact that. But the Supreme Court never mandated EPA set up a regulatory program to control carbon dioxide. It simply said, if you find that it endangers public health and welfare and that you can assign that endangerment through the contribution of particular sources, 
then that activates some of the regulatory programs and associated responsibilities laid out in the Clean Air Act. So it sounds to me like this might come down to the set of facts then you're using, because like you're saying, it depends on whether the EPA finds there being a public health endangerment, for instance. And so I guess this maybe gets to why Scott Pruitt wanted to have a sort of red team, blue team discussion around climate science and get more information from both sides on the table, which was very controversial um, because a lot of people believe the science is settled. But it sounds like getting down to what facts and what science we're referring to here is key. Brandon, you had a specific point about that and how the EPA has treated science um, under the Trump administration. So do you want to highlight that? Yeah, you know, as somebody who worked for a Nobel Prize winning, you know, scientist, I mean, we we really prioritized it. And uh, Mandy, I understand that you said, you know, we're supposed to be working in a world of scientific understanding. I'm curious as to what that means to you, because it seems to me like the EPA is not taking the advice of scientists. In fact, your science advisory board has said that there's been insufficient attention to the to the use of science in your policymaking? So I would disagree with the characterization from some of the scientific advisory board members. I think we've taken it upon ourselves from day one to openly engage with those that agree with us on the issue and those that disagree with us on the issue. And and I, I think that's important because it's true what you say. The path we're going down, it's it's very controversial. And I don't think it should be controversial. I think when you're talking about science, that's constantly in an evolutionary state and engaging in what is fully understood and what is not fully understood with a broad swath and diverse group of individuals, that's incumbent for the regulatory agency to always strive to seek that type of information and engage on. And despite what some in some and and you're right, some of the SAB members themselves have said so, but there's other advisors who are a part of the constructive dialogue, I would I would characterize it as. Um, and and we've been engaging with them on some of our priority regulatory actions, and there are meaningful conversations going on. So to go back to the point about maybe acting on uh, the endangerment finding or not, is there work ongoing at the EPA to better understand some of the underlying facts and maybe reach out to these various stakeholders you mentioned and rejigger the foundation and then come back to the rulemaking side of things? Is that accurate? Well, I think on the... The, the red team, blue team, the whole generation of that discussion was there are some, and someone characterized them as a vocal minority, um, but others wouldn't, right? There's there's some in the climate space that feel their voices and their perspectives of climate science haven't been heard. And so the whole nexus of having a red team, blue team conversation was to provide a platform where you can engage on those issues in a way that's meaningful and in a way that the the public at large can absorb and discuss in a non-contentious way. The, the issue, and this happens in a lot of our programs, but especially the case when we're talking about climate change or the environment, is it's been so politicized, people immediately get categorized into unhelpful um qualifiers, so to speak. Are you are you a denier? Are you a skeptic? Are you an alarmist? There's a range of them out there, but being categorized prevents the ability to engage on what are some very complex and ongoing issues surrounding our understanding of climate change and how we as policy deciders should work that into the decisions we're making. I, I just disagree. It seems to me like 
you're just trying to ignore it. I mean, you scrubbed the entire EPA website uh, of any mention of climate change to the point where a former Republican EPA administrator called it, you know, such an extreme degree that it undermines your credibility. How do you respond to that? So I would say... Again, I wasn't a part of the communications team, but when any new administration comes on, they changed the website. And some of what was reported was a rush to uh, conclusion when all that was really going on was the website in in general was undergoing change of listing priorities and, you know, putting up banners that say back to basics and cooperative federalism and we there there's still a climate change webpage on the website today if you want to go so perhaps there were snapshots in time where some of the websites were or web pages were down because of internal construction in response to the fact that a new administration came in and we talk about things differently and we we prioritize things differently but there was no concerted action to scrub from the website or from general public discourse the words climate change. Well, Brandon, I would I would ask you too, because when we talk about the websites being scrubbed, and I read about it all the time, it typically pretends as though uh, President Obama was the first president. So whatever he built was then the baseline, and then everything different than that was a scrubbing. But you guys surely at DOE updated some of your priorities on the website when you took over, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think that there were, um, you know, for like Christine Todd Whitman agrees that uh, this is sort of an unprecedented way to do this. Well, I did EPA have a website when she was head of EPA? I mean, was she familiar with the way that these occur? And was she subject to the scrutiny that we've all been subject to the day that we walked in where any minor change, whether temporary or long term, is suddenly a headline splashed across the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or you name it. I think her perspective is a little bit different, and I think it's one to respect and listen to. But I don't think that she speaks for, um, you know, for what is what is right or what is wrong in the context of how we communicate our message at the EPA today. It is very true that we're in this heightened political moment. We we all know this very clearly. It's why we started the podcast, and so it is important to. Take that, um, you know, chill pill, if you will, and understand what is unprecedented versus what is normal procedure and and be able to call out both. And there's a fair discussion to be had in there. So maybe getting back to one of the more foundational questions, do you think fundamentally that the fossil fuel industry is not as environmentally damaging as the previous administration made it out to be? Is that a sort of underlying belief of the current administration? I know there's also been some specific outreach to the coal industry and sort of saying, we want to hear from you. So is that a base level belief? Yes or no? I would say it differently. They're they're a part of the regulated community, and it's incumbent upon the regulator to have a good relationship with the regulated community to be effective. And whether we're talking to utility owners, whether we're talking to the oil and gas industry, whether we're talking to corn farmers or merchant refiners or whatnot, we have to engage in having a good and constructive relationship with the regulated community helps us achieve the environmental outcomes that we've set out before us. And I do think that that is a huge differentiation between the way we approach our regulatory responsibility versus the way the previous administration. My first 
probably my first month and a half, I went down and spoke to the Eastern Fuel Buyers Conference. And I said to the folks in the room, look, I'm here from the EPA. I look around this room and I don't see a bunch of polluters. I actually see partners in achieving environmental outcomes. And I think you have to be realistic. If they aren't working with us, then that undermines the effectiveness of the regulations we set out before us because they truly are the ones that are responsible for the day-to-day implementation and ensuring that their scrubbers are operating effectively and efficiently. And that's just one example. But I think it's a good thing for us to have uh, open dialogue and a constant level of communication with the regulated community out there. I'm for open dialogue. And, you know, I was not at the EPA, uh, but we constantly engaged with industry uh, when we were issuing regulations. I mean, one of the things that the EPA did under Obama was to prevent coal companies from dumping mountaintop removal debris into waterways. And you have reversed that rule. I'm wondering, how does that make any sense? So I will admit my limitations. I, I, I'm not as familiar with any of the water-related um, regulatory decisions or, or the underlying um, justifications for that. But I would just say, generally speaking, us having a good relationship better understands the way that the the industries we regulate work to ensure that when we set out a regulation, it's not only achievable, but feasible in a way that balances environmental protection with economic growth, which has been a bedrock principle of the EPA set out by you know, President Trump and then implemented through Administrator Pruitt. And will likely the mantle of that will be picked up by Administrator Wheeler, Acting Administrator Wheeler. Yeah, I think that is the source of tension, though, is the treatment of industry. People grew accustomed to the idea, and maybe justifiably so, that the EPA should not be friendly with industry, but you know, it's it's sort of the watchdog for the American people and should, you know, treat them as a regulated entity and, and impose more mandates and things like that rather than seek a back and forth and exchange. And I think that's just a philosophical difference. Yeah. And I do think it plays out then in the media and coverage and all this stuff is just Pruitt and the EPA on an ongoing basis being cozy with industry. And for a lot of people that just doesn't sit well. Yeah. And, and I would just say we're not we're not I wouldn't characterize us being friendly or cozy. We are the regulator, and we do have a responsibility to ensure they follow the regulations we set out. We have an entire arm of the agency, our Office of Enforcement, um, that is responsible for ensuring if there's an industry player or some member of the regulated community that's not following our regulations, they go after them, they go after them hard. But there's no reason for us to be adversarial on the get-go. You just can't have a good constructive conversation and continue to put in motion the envir- environmental protections and the health protections that we've prioritized from day one without a good working relationship with the people who are most responsible for effectuating that. Is there an example of when you have you know, enforced and, and gone after them? Yeah, so there... Again, this is outside of my purview. This is this is enforcement space. Um, there are a number of enforcement announcements that have been announced since the administrator has been here. Some of those have included going after oil and gas companies in Oklahoma and out west in that area, the quote unquote industry that he's so cozy with. But I think he he made an important distinction that that if someone's violating the law, we do go after them. 
um, we have to. And his commitment to the rule of law and the statutory responsibility, that is laid out very clearly. And he takes that as seriously as he does setting up emission standards for new sources out there or hazardous air emission programs under Section 112. And that he being Scott Pruitt. Right. And again, it's hard to know exactly what will happen. There could be um, a new administrator that is not even Andrew Wheeler. But for now, we'll go with the tone set under Scott Pruitt. I want to just quickly address, because it is a hot-button issue, is the Clean Power Plan. And you mentioned emissions and, and enforcement. What is the EPA's view on regulating carbon emissions now? The Obama administration's plan was the Clean Power Plan. Is there some other way that the EPA will seek to limit carbon pollution under a method that you view more legally justifiable? So that is the part of an ongoing and internal discussion at the agency. But what I do want to point out for folks is the Clean Power Plan, it was the centerpiece to the previous administration's climate agenda um, and heralded up as the regulatory action that was going to save the world. It never actually went into effect. And that's because before it ever went into effect, the Supreme Court put a stay on it. And since then, we've we've been under the Supreme Court stay where you have a regulatory proposal out there that's never actually gone into effect. So what we're doing is we're looking at Section 111, which is the the section of the Clean Air Act that the authority for setting a regulatory standard for utilities or power plants in this space um, is derived, we've taken a look at that statutory provision and we've asked the questions, where does the authority extend and where does it end? So we're having a range of discussions about what are the what are the, the technical considerations we would take into account? What are the legal considerations? What are the tools Congress actually gave us to set these out? And then how would we most effectively implement that consistent with the charge of cooperative federalism? Let me explain that just for a second. So I say it a lot. That means engaging in a very proactive way with the states, the state DEQs or DEPs, public service commissioners, their local officials, because the design of the Clean Air Act is such, especially in Section 111, where you're setting emission guidelines, is EPA sets a general framework, and then the states take that framework and they apply it consistent with their local power generation mix, what's the existing life, what is the, the relevant demographic makeup of their constituency, all sorts of important factors that we, the federal EPA, don't necessarily take into account or aren't positioned to effectively take into account because that would be a massive undertaking. Um, we hand it to the states and the states figure out what is the way that we can set this out that actually works. So all that to say, we're having extensive conversations about this and we proposed a repeal of the CPP last fall, but we also proposed what's called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. That's a step before you would put out a proposed rulemaking. And it was essentially asking those questions that I just laid out. I have two follow-up questions there, Mandy. Um, one is, what role will science play um, as you're making those determinations? Uh, and number two, one of the things that we did with the Clean Power Plan was to give the states the flexibility to implement it in whichever way they saw fit. We just set like an overall goal and they could accomplish that goal with whatever plan they wanted to come up with. So I'm curious as, as to also what you think about that, whether you know that flexibility was something that was too burdensome or was that, you know, did you have an issue with that approach? I think it was perceived flexibility and not actual flexibility. We heard a lot from the states 
when the CPP came out. And that term was thrown around a lot. But what the agency did is it, it set a strict standard, a mission standard, and basically said, you in this region of the country, your coal plants can only emit this much. And your natural gas plants, even though we aren't necessarily talking about that, and that isn't as controversy, can only emit this much. They relied on the building block approach to come up with those specific standards. So, yeah, states, you can do other things, but they were essentially limited by how they could actually get there because of the analysis by which those emissions were set. Well, and one thing I would say, too, is, Brandon, we share the goal. I think we, we always have about sort of where we want to end up. And I think that I think we've talked about this before, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think all of the complication with what Mandy's talking about and all the work they're doing is part of why we've always said that while the Supreme Court permits regulation of carbon under the Clean Air Act, the Clean Air Act wasn't written to do that. So I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm saying it wasn't written to do that. It's a blunt instrument. And that's why, you know, Congress, I think, should be more proactive in finding a solution that works because I'm not going to argue that they cannot do it, that EPA cannot do it. I'm just going to argue that the Clean Air Act is such a blunt instrument that it's really, really complicated to find a path forward. And clearly, the, the, the administration in power now and the administration in power prior don't agree on how to do that. And frankly, I don't think really anyone on planet Earth understands what that authority is or, or how it was supposed to work. And I spent a lot of time doing this, but I, I always thought you were of the mind like me that while it's permitted, there's a better way to do it. And that's to get some sort of collective force together and pass a law that makes sense, that, that meet our goals. I am 100% in agreement that this would be better done through the Congress. And I think that, you know, is, is the view that, you know, President Obama had, which is why we went to the Congress and tried to get a Republican plan of cap and trade that was, you know, George H.W. Bush was the person who, you know, sort of they came up with that idea, uh, or it's at least how they they dealt with acid rain, um, and it was highly successful. So that that was the initial approach. And you're now in control of Congress, and you know, as we've discussed, would love to learn. You know, while I you're in I power, was in how, of how do you want to address this issue? Like, you know, how can we do something uh, in Congress? Because I I would love to hear what you think could be done uh, at the legislative level on this. I think what could be done and, 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 and I hope what can be done is incremental change. I think that in any policy, but I think climate policy specifically as well, when you go from the baseline to something well outside the baseline in either direction, it creates so much angst and so much uproar that you can talk about it. You can, you can sort of make headway, but it's really hard to meet the goals. What I'd like to see is a program that is acceptable to both sides that doesn't put too much economic strain, but maybe give some economic benefits. So maybe you find ways, you know, to advance battery storage. Maybe you find ways to incentivize uh, expansion of clean technologies. But but you know, as we've discussed before, I don't like punishing certain industries. I don't like the idea of saying I want X, so therefore you have to fire all your employees. I want to find a way where we can incentivize the behaviors we want and and sort of not punish the industries that we don't favor. So we're talking about Congress, but I want to shift it back to the administration <laughs> because, you know, again, Mandy, you're here. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, there could be some kind of EPA rulemaking that gives some direction to states under the Trump administration. Is that fair to say? There could be something that's not the Clean Power Plan, but you are working toward some form of regulation. Yeah. And, and I would say we've we've been public about it in the advance notice of proposed rulemaking we put out at the start of the year, which basically invited public comment early on to that very question. 
What are the authorities we have? How could we achieve this? And how do we respect the federal role versus the state role in implementing that? So yes, we've been we've been having those discussions internally and externally as well. And what's the timeline now? When is the, when could we see some further action on that? So there are there are in the airspace. We have six priority issues. One of them is the Clean Power Plan actions. I can characterize it as that. Our goal was to have final action in that space by the end of this year. Now, that's a little hard looking at the regulatory timeframe. It's July, and we do not yet have a proposed rule out there um, that would encompass some sort of regulation that sets emission standards, carbon emission standards from this administration yet. But I would say relatively soon we should have something over to the Office of Management and Budget that does and controls the interagency process so that all other agencies can comment and and add or edit as needed before we would then submit it for the Federal Register, but relatively soon. So we have a bunch of other topics we want to get to, so we will pick up the pace, but I want to put one sort of fundamental question out there, and I put it to Shane on our very first show, and I think our listeners will be eager to know. Um, I think, Mandy, you identify as Republican. You work for a Republican administration. Do you believe in human-caused climate change? There's a viral video of Senator Inhofe bringing a snowball into the Senate, and he's labeled as an outspoken climate skeptic. You're sitting behind him in that viral I, I video. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of him showing that uh, he brought the snowball in to say, oh, look, it's cold outside, so you know, climate change doesn't really exist. Do you believe in human-caused climate change? So first to the snowball, um, yes, I was responsible for bringing the Senator Snowball to the floor. But but part of, and if you read the speech that he actually gave, it wasn't to say, oh, climate change isn't real because it's snowing outside. It was to point out how the press covers one extreme event in one way to bolster, yes, global warming or climate change is happening and ignores others. When at the end of the day, everyone's talking about weather events that are not climate change when you look out of long term. So there's a piece of nuance that is missed when people talk about the snowball incident. And I'm air quoting for purposes. But um, yes, I was there. And that was actually my third or fourth week of work. So it was a... You got thrown was, right it, in. Yeah, right, right into the fray. <laughs> but to your question... Yes, climate change has been happening. And and I actually, I have a qualm with the way that that question is constantly posed. It's, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of understanding and knowing and seeking to understand and know more. But the problem is that asking that question has become a litmus test for, are you an extreme right conservative or an extreme left liberal? And that in and of itself lends itself to very unconstructive dialogue where people start going after um, you know, public officials in a personal way rather than having policy discussions. But yes, the climate has always been changing. Do humans have a role in that? I believe the answer is yes, but to what extent and what we can actually do about it is the point of ongoing debate that that I seek every day to better understand and to figure out, is there is there any solution out there that can actually impact it? To date, including the Clean Power Plan, no policy solution has been proposed that would actually have any substantive impact on what, what folks are generally trying to go after when they're talking about curbing climate change. 
Wait, how did the clean power plan not do that? If you measure it in terms of climate change indicators, as the previous administration characterized it, so whether you're talking about sea level rise or temperature or overall global emissions, when that was actually measured, it was in an almost immeasurable way. So you were basically imposing significant costs on the economy. You're going to make the cost of energy go up. And for what actual impact on the climate? The the constant talking point, but it was derived from an analysis done by the MAGIC model, um, where people measure these things, um, said that for all of the costs and, and emission reductions of the clean power plan, it would reduce sea level rise by three sheets of paper. And, and I think that if you are of the mindset that climate change is catastrophic and sea level rise is going to up, go up immensely and temperatures are going to go up immensely and you're looking at the most doom and gloom scenarios that are out there in the context of projecting what the future looks like, if you are imposing billions of dollars on the economy and you reduce sea level rise by three sheets of paper, I think you're falling significantly short of what your overall objective is. I think the tension there came up because the Clean Power Plan was also part of the United States commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. And a lot of people think, yeah, we cannot do this alone. We need global action. You know, India, China are growing like crazy, building coal plants. And so the Clean Power Plan was step one of getting global action, other countries to also make their own plans. And then collectively, we could ratchet up some of the targets and at least get some momentum going. It wasn't going to solve it on its own. But by repealing the Clean Power Plan and by withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord, which hasn't been fully enacted, but is a Trump administration policy, a lot of people think we've lost that momentum. And there is no hope of, of the U.S. doing solving climate change on its own. And so how do we get everyone on board now that the U.S. has, you know, altered course? Yeah, Julie, I think there's, that was a good point. But Mandy, is your argument that Obama was not doing enough on climate change? Is that the point you're trying to make? Yeah, I, some some certainly did argue that. And we had a couple of witnesses when I was at the Environment and Public Works Committee that certainly came from that perspective. I'm simply pointing out for those that did view the Clean Power Plan as the centerpiece action to address climate change, that when you did the analysis to determine its actual impact on how the previous administration measured it, those outcomes fell significantly short. If you're asking me, I think the previous administration exceeded its legal authority and they were trying to implement a rule in a way that was inconsistent with the direction of Congress and that the agency did not have the authority to implement. And we'll have to leave it at that on that topic. Oh, you're killing me, Julia. I have so much to say. The crap about like imposing all these costs and all that, that didn't happen. Energy continues to be like reasonably priced. We created a lot of jobs under Obama, despite, you know, all the regulations that we put in place. So I just want people to know that because that stuff drives me nuts. But I would just point out the reason that energy prices didn't spike is because the Clean Power Plan never actually went into effect because the Supreme Court agreed with what I essentially said was that EPA did not have the authority to do it from the get-go. Mandy, I hope you'll come back and I hope you bring (laughs) Andrew Wheeler with you because we have a lot more to discuss. We do, we do. We have a lot more to discuss. And so I want to move us along. 
So the renewable fuel standard has been less high profile than, say, the Clean Power Plan. Um, Shane, you described it as one of the most hot-button environmental policy issues out there today. Uh, Lay out a bit of the the drama circulating around biofuels and big ag versus big oil and what we're hearing about this today. Yeah, so this has been the bane of my existence for years under a number of different positions that I've held. And it's one of those policies that the reason I think it's interesting politically is it actually doesn't make sense to anyone. So the only sense that it makes is political sense. There's states that have a disproportionate amount of corn production, and obviously you're raising the price of the commodity by requiring that people buy it up and turn it into fuel and put it in your car. The interesting thing about this politically is that you know I worked at the American Petroleum Institute, and I worked in fuels and refining, and we teamed up with the Environmental Defense Fund and other groups because it's bad for the environment, right? It's bad for oil and gas companies. It's bad for uh, bad for automobiles and, and different sorts of engines, whether it's jet skis or, or you know smaller engines. And so it's one of those interesting policies where it's not you know the environmental left versus the conservative right. It's everyone on planet Earth against people who make money selling corn. And you know if you're a conservationist, you obviously don't want extra land being you know disturbed to make a fuel. If you're you know for feeding the poor or the homeless, obviously you don't want food going to make fuel. You want it going to produce food and feed those in need. Um, if you care about the environment, it actually makes emissions more complicated, which is why I think we're going to talk about this later. But the E15 issue is a big issue. It actually harms the emissions process and and, and pollutes the air. So you've got environmentalists, you've got oil and gas. Um, politicians from states who support oil and gas, uh, everyone on planet Earth. And, and, and then you've got Senator Chuck Grassley, who's very powerful, who really, 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 really wants this to work. And so I, I don't want to project anything on anyone else in the room, but it's been a frustration of mine for years. And just to clarify, the current policy is to mix a certain portion of biofuels in with fossil fuel fuels. It's, it's, it's a requirement. Kind and of. EPA it's controls a, that. Yeah, it's a fixed amount of, of ethanol. So it's not a percentage. It's a fixed amount. And that's actually where a lot of the debate is, right? There's a, there's a percentage you can blend that, that's okay, and then there's a percentage you can blend that's less okay, and projections when the law was put in place were not consistent with fuel consumption because cars have become more efficient, and people are driving smaller, lightweight vehicles. So the amount of ethanol in, in total that you're supposed to put in the fuel pool is not consistent with what cars and other vehicles can actually absorb. So it drives up the price of compliance because you can't actually sell enough to comply with the law. Just one quick, quick comment. A lot of people are pro-biofuel. Ethanol is different. There are biofuels that are drop-in. So they do everything the way oil and gas does it. They're just made out of um, plants. And so there are are some environmental benefits there. It's ethanol that's the big debate because it's actually bad for the environment also. Well, upon Scott Pruitt's uh, departure, there are headlines from the Midwest talking about Iowa lawmakers cheering Pruitt's leaving because this is supposedly going to be maybe a win for the biofuel sector. Um, Mandy, from your perspective, why is it that the biofuel community was upset with Pruitt and the current EPA? What did they want that they didn't get uh, in some of the most recent EPA rulemaking? So to set it out, let me explain what we most recently did. What What we issued was the annual rulemaking called the Renewable Volume Obligation. What it essentially does is it sets out the amount of fuel that have to be blended in four distinct categories of renewable fuel. You have conventional, which is largely met by ethanol. Um, You have cellulosic, you have advanced, and then you have biomass-based diesel. And so every year, EPA is responsible for proposing what those volume requirements will be. And then 
also included a complicated equation by which those are divvied up among all the obligated parties. And when I say obligated parties, I'm talking about importers and refiners. And they are the ones responsible for ensuring they take those set out amount, amounts and blend them into the general fuel supply and then comply with the yearly standards. So we just propose that. Every year we are required to finalize those standards by November 30th. That is a statutory deadline. In the previous administration, that statutory deadline was often missed. And the problem with that, especially when you're talking about the renewable fuel standard, this is a very sensitive place from a political perspective, but also a market perspective. The way people prove compliance is through the submission of something called a renewable identification number. That is a number that is generated with every gallon of biofuel that's created. The so-called RINs. The RINs, yes. That's where a lot of the controversy is derived. So I promise I'm getting to the point. Um, We just put the rule out. The rule was basically your regular order rule. It included the things I laid out. The volumes for the year, how those are divvied up among obligated parties. What it did not include was what I would characterize as the grand bargain that has been ongoing discussions between EPA, USDA, and the White House for months and months and months, where all parties have been trying to figure out a way to address concerns from the ag community, which is the desire to sell E15 year-round, and they view as a regulatory barrier to that the fact that you cannot sell E15 during the summer months because of associated evaporative emissions. There's elements of controversy to that, but it's the most neutral way I can and frame that. They would like E15 to be granted a year-round waiver so they can be so, so that it can be sold year-round. That's what the agriculture community wants. What you have on not the oil industry but merchant refiners, which are a subset, they have expressed significant concerns with the cost of compliance. And what they're referring to is this variability of the price of a RIN that has gone from three cents pre-2013 all the way to over a dollar. And when you're planning for how much a program is going to cost in terms of your refinery or company's ability to comply, that type of instability and significant sway causes a lot of consternation in that community. Those are the two main items, RIN stability and granting of the RVP waiver that we've been working collectively to try to figure out what is the path forward to make this happen. But none of that was included in the RVO. So the latest complaint is that that vehicle was not used to take pieces of the negotiated deal or grand bargain um, to to move those along in terms of regulatory action. And that's how you get to headlines like biofuel industry cheers per its departure, everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you know, I wanted to make a couple of points, you know, for our, our listeners. Number one, I think, you know, I believe that the, that the statute uh, that this comes from uh, that George W. Bush signed is the only statute that explicitly mentions reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so that's sort of how far we've come from, uh, you know, we used to have a Republican president that would, you know, support that, uh, and now we don't. Um, and the other point I want to make is just the politics of this. For people that are in the renewable energy industry or the electric vehicle industry, <laughs> this is where you want to be. I mean, I think, you know, when Pruitt was doing, you know, all this corrupt stuff, people were looking the other way in the administration. But once, you know, these bipartisan senators, especially these Republican senators like Chuck Grassley from Iowa, were really upset about what uh, Pruitt was doing on this renewable fuel standard. That, I think, is a major reason as to why 
um, he was fired. Uh, so for, for the industries out there in renewables and electric vehicles and such, that's where you want to get to as far as political protection, because you really can't mess with the renewable fuel standard. Whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, it is a politically protected uh, piece of legislation because of the jobs associated with that. And what I hope to see is that all of the people working in solar and wind and other renewables to stand up uh, and, and, you know, because there's a lot of jobs out there now and get that political protection uh, going forward. So, Brandon, would, would what you're talking about be something akin to like a nationwide renewable portfolio standard? And then also, I think what's weird about that is this is just one of those weird issues where like Iowa is a first in the nation caucus. Like it's just a very, very niche issue. I feel like even if you had like a renewable portfolio standard or some sort of like nationwide ZEC program, uh, zero emissions credit program, this is just so weird because it's in, in an area that literally if you want to be president of the United States, there's a group of states you have to win. And we've seen this year after year. Trump won them. President Obama won them. And these are these Midwestern states. And corn is just a huge deal there. I am no longer a renewable fuel standard expert. This is one area I have to admit. But I do know more about corporate fuel economy standards. And we are going to get to that in a moment. But we're going to take a minute right now to do our constituent services segment. This is where we hear from our listeners and have our co-hosts address a question or comment from the Twitter sphere. And you can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. So tweet at us. Tell us what you'd like us to discuss in our next episode. This week, we're going to take a question that actually kind of originated from our co-hosts, Shane and Brandon. But we did have some other listeners weigh in on it. So... The central question is, is it okay for constituents to approach public officials on their personal time to express grievances? This stems from the fact that Scott Pruitt was approached by a teacher at a D.C. restaurant who expressed her disapproval of his policies and urged him to resign. The video made its rounds on the Internet. Shane, you shared this link initially. Uh, tell us why you took issue with this. It, it actually had nothing to do with Administrator Pruitt. It was that there was a Sarah Huckabee Sanders moment before that, and then I saw this link when I was scrolling through my feed. I think also I, with Kirsten Nielsen at, at HHS as well. Yeah, and so there, there were there were two things, right? One is in your question, you mentioned constituents, and these are not elected officials. These are staff. And so it's very different. When you put yourself out there as an elected official, then you have to answer to your voters. When you're hired to do a job, your family shouldn't be harassed. Um, in response to that. So the reason I take issue with it was I lived in DC. I worked with people in a wide range of jobs. As everyone of our listeners knows, Brandon and I are very friendly and that's how it works. And so you can say to someone, I don't like the way this election turned out. I don't like the way you're implementing this particular statute. Totally fair game. And whether elected or appointed, I think that's a fair question to ask. What you can't do, in my opinion, is say, I don't like the fact that your boss got elected, hired someone who hired you, and now as a result, your children, your family, you can't be seen in public. I mean, we've seen it as mundane as what happened to Administrator Pruitt, where someone just ruined his dinner with whoever his guest was. We've seen um, pictures of Ajit Pai. His, uh, he's an FCC commissioner. There were um, photos of his children's schools sent to him saying, we're going to kill your children because of this policy. That's so, because of the net neutrality net policy neutrality. that they're putting in place? But I don't think the policy is relevant. I think the point is that when you're acting in an official capacity, that doesn't subject your wife, your children, or anyone around you to public harassment. I think that there are proper forums to engage your government. We're a democracy, and in a democracy, you settle disputes by voting. 
And when you see countries that are not democracies, you see uprisings, you see lots of you know shady murders, you see riots, you see fires, you see bombs. We don't do that because our people know when you get upset, you go out there, you collect money, you whip up voters, you put out leaflets, but you get the opportunity to overthrow the government by peaceful means. That's what makes our country better than everyone else. And I think while there's a difference between interrupting a dinner and threatening to kill your children, there actually isn't in principle. The principle either holds that we build a barricade between your public life and your family and your personal life, or you don't. And I think it's a really slippery slope. And I'm actually honestly quite scared of, of where it's going to go. Well, I think that's where one of our listeners did weigh in on Twitter saying you can't equate a death threat, which I think we would all agree is like far too far to go um, with interrupting a dinner to express a grievance. Um, and you did address that and you think it's a slippery slope. I'm not sure you can differentiate the two because I think what we have is a principle. The principle is either government business stays in the halls of government or government business spills into your personal life. And once you say that as a society, we permit it spilling into your personal life, there are always going to be rational actors and irrational actors. But once we normalize addressing people at their homes or in a restaurant or in their personal lives, then that applies to both rational actors and irrational actors alike. And who knows what the consequences of that are. Brandon, what would you say to this? I think where Shane and I agree is, number one, you know, nobody should be harassing or threatening violence against anybody. That is not okay. Um, and I do agree with Shane that the best way to achieve the policy outcomes that we want is to vote. Our people need to vote. We are not turning out enough, and that needs to change in the midterms and in the 2020 presidential election. But where I think I do disagree is that, you know, you're a public servant, and the taxpayers pay your salary. And if somebody wants to raise an issue with you, even if it's on personal time, and they do it in a respectful way and diplomatic way, like this woman did with with Scott Pruitt, and I think had you know it did have an effect on him getting fired because it re, it caused the media to bring all these stories back you know uh, to the forefront. Um, I think that's okay. You know, if somebody would have approached me in a respectful way, um, you know, I I would be open to having that conversation. And so, uh, because I viewed myself as, you know, as serving the public and, and, uh, I'm accountable to them. It'd be like if my boss interrupted me, uh, at dinner, sometimes you have to do that because that's who you work for. We work for the people. So, uh, but you know, I would say that the other thing is that right now it, it is a sensitive time. People are so angry. I, this last two weeks have been different. The Supreme Court thing was such a gut punch for us. The Supreme Court thing being that Justice Kennedy announced he's going to retire? Yeah. And what, what's happened is, you know, the Republicans under the last year of Obama stole a Supreme Court seat. They wouldn't give Merrick Garland a hearing. Um, and they made up some rule that you can't do it in an election year. Uh, and now that Kennedy is retired, it's going to tilt the court in a very conservative direction for probably a generation. And so some of us can say, okay, this Trump thing is terrible, but in two years we have a chance, you know, to kick him out of office. But with this Supreme Court seat, and we have no power to really, you know, change it because the Republicans have majority of the Senate, this will change the court for a generation. And it has been really hard, I think, for people people to deal with this. They're, they're really upset. And the number of like phone calls and texts, emails, you know, that I've been getting the last two weeks from people has been really different. There's, there's an anger out there. And I think that's leading to some of the stuff that we're seeing in the public sphere. That's an interesting point. Yeah. So you're saying there's just a lot of 
you know, high tensions right now. And so you're seeing a lot of people feel like they need to find some way to speak out. Yeah, this could have an, you know, an impact on climate, right? I mean, Justice Kennedy was the deciding vote in this court case that we mentioned earlier, Massachusetts, which gave, you know, the EPA the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. If that decision was heard, you know, now that after Trump's appointment, it probably doesn't come out the same way. I just want to end with a point that one of our listeners made on Twitter when we started having this debate about constituent outreach. At Water Doug said, ask the mayor of any small town if they can even pump gas without engaging with constituents, particularly on issues of dissent. Previous EPA administrators would go completely unnoticed by the general public, not because they were insignificant, but because they weren't notorious. Of course, he's referring to Pruitt there and the ongoing reporting of his scandals. So perhaps the Pruitt situation was somewhat unique for an EPA administrator. But to Brandon's point, we could see a lot more public outcry as tensions continue to run high. And as long as it doesn't get to a situation maybe where we have um, false information leading to armed protest at D.C. pizza parlors, (laughs) uh, that would be ideal. Well, but let's be clear, it's not an isolated incident. We just talked about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Kirsten Nielsen, Ajit Pai. So that that that, that ship has sailed. It's not a Pruitt-specific issue. It's an issue on the left. And as Brandon pointed out, there's a lot of anger. And I think in a democracy, we owe it to ourselves and everyone in the country to focus that anger. If your anger is based on a policy, address that through the proper channels. But don't kick you know a staffer out of a restaurant. Or you have the right to do it. But it's just not civil discourse. Can I, can I add to that, too? I don't think that... That type of scrutiny, I'd call it, that we saw under Administrator Pruitt is going to change at all under Acting Administrator Wheeler. I think there's some on the left that have a lot of money. They're very sophisticated and they know how to make people's life a living hell. And I think they did that for Administrator Pruitt. I think they're going to continue that approach for Acting Administrator Wheeler. And that's just the world that we now live in. And so what what I do appreciate about y'all's podcast is the fact that you can take really controversial policy components and we're actually having a very constructive and civil dialogue. And I think that's the example that people should seek out, especially in instances where they are emotionally charged. Um, you should educate yourself and engage in a meaningful and a constructive way. And going up to folks in their personal and private time and, you know, the worst end of it is threatening people's family members, that that's, that's not the way to go about doing business. I think we can all agree on, on that last part for sure. Okay, now to one of the last issues we're going to cover today, the corporate average fuel economy standards and vehicle emission standards, which is specifically what the EPA regulates. So in April, the EPA under Scott Pruitt announced a plan to freeze fuel economy targets at the levels required for vehicles sold in 2020 and leave those in place through 2026. That would mark a pretty dramatic retreat from the existing law, the law that the Obama administration wanted to put in place for the nation's fleet of light trucks and cars. So under the Obama plan, fuel economy would have increased to about 55 miles per gallon by 2025. Under the EPA's current proposal, fuel economy would increase to 42 miles per gallon and and stay there. In May, California and 17 other states sued the Trump administration over its push to reconsider the greenhouse gas emissions for the nation's auto fleet. Mandy, please weigh in here. What is the EPA's position on reforming CAFE? So a 
a couple of things there. The the decision that was made April 2nd, actually, um, was something called a final determination. And this was a part of a process called the midterm evaluation. So the original standards for light duty cars and trucks was set back in 2012. And a part of that package was an agreement by all parties. So you're talking about EPA, California Air Resources Board, the auto companies, and a few other constituencies impacted by this. The deal was to do a mid-course review called the midterm evaluation to assess whether or not the standards that were set back in 2012 were consistent with today's expectations, cost, and the evolutionary state of vehicle technology. So the previous administration, at the very end, early January, issued a final determination that basically said the standards going out to model year 2025, they're good. Nothing to change here. The problem is it cut short this midterm evaluation. It cut it short by over a year. And the problem is that final determination was not based on the latest and greatest information with regard to all of those issues. So Administrator Pruitt came back in. He put the midterm evaluation back on its original course engaged with stakeholders, and then made a final determination in April, not what the standards should be, but what he said is that the current trajectory of the standards is not appropriate. And we are going to engage in a rulemaking to set right those standards consistent with today's vehicle technology, the costs associated with that, and regulatory expectations. So we have not yet put out any of those proposals. What you refer to is, I'm air quoting, a leaked document um, from early January, February. I think it was reported by Bloomberg that the proposed rule was going to stop the CAFE slash greenhouse gas standards at model year 2020 and basically flatline the program. We have not yet put out a proposal that should be coming out relatively soon. The joint proposal is over at the Office of Management and Budget right now, undergoing that interagency review, and we should have something out for public discourse in the coming weeks. Can you say anything about what kind of direction it's heading in? So what we've we've generally been saying, and I I think folks understand, is there going to be a range of scenarios, everything from maintaining the program to that what some characterize as flatlining of the program. And it's proposed in that way to invite the constructive comment and information from parties to determine where should the standards be. We want them to be meaningful, but we don't want to unnecessarily penalize car companies by setting a standard that they can't feasibly achieve. Or they can feasibly achieve, but at an increased cost. And when you increase the cost of a vehicle, you limit the number of parties that can drive newer cars that are more efficient and safer. And so those are the themes that you'll see permeating through the proposed rule that will be out in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's interesting. I was at a Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference, and they at the time were talking about Scott Pruitt and Mary Nichols, who's head of the California Air Resources Board, as possibly the two most important policymakers on energy and environmental issues in the world, because the CAFE standards really set up this transformation of the vehicle fleet, getting off of oil, which a lot of people believe is essential to effectively mitigate climate change. And so it certainly makes a lot of people nervous in the um, environmental community that these CAFE standards could be revisited. Sounds like there are still a lot of options on the table, though, including keeping some of the ratcheting up trajectory that the Obama administration had proposed. It's interesting to see the automakers themselves kind of waffle a little bit on this issue. I think there's reporting as recently as this week from The New York Times talking about 
uh, CEO of General Motors, Mary Barra, saying that she would be happy with um, the Obama standards and keeping them in place, but would like to add some sweeteners for automakers, such as financial credits for companies to invent more fuel-efficient technologies. So, Brandon, what is your view on this and uh, how important CAFE is? It's super important because for greenhouse gas emissions, we're starting to get uh, power generation sort of under control. You know, we're increasing the number of renewables, um, you know, natural gas in some ways helping with that as well. Uh, but right now, you know, the, the biggest challenge is transportation. Uh, in California, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector is double the power generation sector. So we need to get this under control and CAFE is really important to do that. And if the Trump administration rolls this back, it's going to set us back on dealing with climate change in a major way. Brandon, I'd agree with you that this is a super important program. Our approach to this, though, is is getting it right, because the goal is to ensure consumers still have access to the newest cars that have the most efficient technology and are the safest out there. And what we're trying to balance here is is maintaining that. And when when you talk about the auto companies themselves, they're one constituency in this. There's also the auto dealers out there as well as the consumers. So we are balancing all of their collective interests in the context of what is now the joint proposed rule undergoing interagency review. And I know we'll have a lot more to discuss when that hits hits the federal register and is out for public consumption. So I mentioned Mary Nichols, head of CAR of the California Air Resources Board. California has launched this lawsuit along with several other states. Again, as you mentioned, there's no official rule out there yet. So it's interesting to know what they're suing against because we don't have that document in our hands. But that said, it seems as though they're making a statement with this. California has some of the most aggressive fuel economy standards, and there's this waiver that they get from the EPA to be able to enact those more aggressive rules. And several other states have agreed to go along with them, some even joining in recent months, despite this ongoing CAFE controversy. What can you say about the EPA's conversations with California? Are we headed to litigation here? Is there some other discussions going on where we can get all stakeholders aligned? Because I think the automakers would even say that is their number one priority, to have a national standard and not have California off on its own, the EPA doing another thing, and of course revoking California's waiver so that there is one national standard uh, would create a lot of outcry and I think, again, lead to more litigation. So, Mandy, what can you say about where discussions stand between the EPA and California? So I was in a meeting, we had a meeting with uh, head of California Air Resources Board, Mary Nichols. Last week, I was with the administrator in San Francisco, and we had we had a very good conversation. Generally speaking, um, she, she talked a lot about cooperative federalism and the role of the states, and the administrator understands that. But there's also this line in this context. We, too, think one national program is the way to go, but one national program cannot be driven by the sole goal and advancement of one state to the rest of the country. And what you mentioned earlier, the section we call them the Section 177 states because that's the activating statutory uh, provision that allows them to join in California with regard to their standard setting process. I, I would say, generally speaking, we've been engaging with California since early last year. We view them as a part of this conversation, and we will continue to have that constructive dialogue with Mary Nichols and her team. Do you see a way forward for this to work for everyone? Um, is, there, is there some light in the tunnel here that you see coming out? 
I do. I do think so. Maybe I'm an optimist in this space. Um, we are we are coming from different perspectives in how the program should work and the the role of com- alternative compliance mechanisms. What you hear people talk a lot about is compliance flexibilities. And there's a different philosophical thought if you talk to someone at CARB versus someone at EPA or DOT right now. But I think we will certainly continue to engage with the goal of coming to this ultimate solution. Well, I think what a lot of people could agree on is that having U.S. automakers lead on the technology front would be a win for the country, selling more U.S. cars abroad. And if there is some policy mechanism, as I alluded to earlier, about incentivizing technology, again, I don't have a position on this. I'm not sure where the conversations stand, but I think that's something that a lot of people could get behind because reforming the technology in the automotive space is a huge economic uh, win potentially for the for the country. Yeah, one one thing I would say is I'm a huge fan of EVs, as you know, and our listeners know. And so I think like when we look at utilities and some of the struggles they're going through, both in the the Rust Belt, but then also out here, um, it seems to me like a really cool space to be able to get more EVs on the road and provide more market space for utilities who are maybe struggling in certain generation spaces, but maybe can thrive in transmission and an advanced distribution infrastructure. So I don't know if this is the right law for that because I'm not very familiar with the statute. But in my perfect world, there'd be a way to help utilities and help expand EV adoption and do it in, in a way that sort of everyone was pretty happy with it. Great. So that's the CAFE standards all wrapped up. I think we'll just put one last question to you, Mandy, is what's really to come next? We talked about a lot of deadlines. It sounds like you have a lot of stuff you want to get done before the end of the year. What is what's your week going to look like when you get back to D.C., especially in light of the recent changes? So I would say largely and I think this this is a good question because it goes back to the beginning. I think from a policy perspective, what our relative priorities are and how we're going about achieving them, not much is going to change. I think the process will be a little bit different. The cast of characters will be a little bit different, but I think it'll largely be the same. So we'll be looking to advance our regulatory actions in the context of clean power plan actions. Um, We have the CAFE standards slash greenhouse gas standards um, that will be forthcoming. They're under interagency review right now. We have, I hate to introduce policy items we didn't necessarily discuss, but there's the mercury and air toxic standard that's been under review. We actually just got a decision today, and I haven't read the whole opinion, but we got a decision in our BRIC-MACT, Maximum Achievable Control Technology. This is basically standards set for hazardous air pollutants that impact the BRIC industry. We had ongoing litigation, and we had a decision come out today, partially good, partially adverse. So we'll be figuring out how do we move forward with that, because we've been in the midst of reconsidering that rule. Um, The list is endless, and there's a lot of work to be done. So I think there's there's still a lot of momentum at the agency. We came in charged with implementing President Trump's vision of the EPA and his relative agenda, and we'll, we'll continue to do so. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain this because I think the process will help folks get a better understanding of just how this is all being rolled out and some of the thinking that goes into it, which I know is hard to capture in the news industry, being in it myself. So now we'll just switch to our final segment, as we always do, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where each of our co-hosts has to say something they found redeeming about the opposing political party. Brandon, we'll have you go first. Mine's going to be obvious this week. I'm so happy that there's consequences to the corruption and that Scott Pruitt is gone. Um, and, uh, but I, I also want to just mention something else. Uh, we had this in our Slack channel exchange between us. 
I was feeling, you know, as I mentioned earlier, just really down uh, about everything that's been happening lately. And, you know, we had this Twitter exchange with Shane and it didn't make me feel any better to like tweet at him. Um, I much prefer to like to get together in person, have a beer with Shane. Uh, but I did, I had stumbled across this article uh, in the New York Times that Tom Friedman wrote um, called Where American Politics Can Still Work from the Bottom Up. And it's about Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I really encourage people to go take a look at it because it's really about how Republicans and Democrats can come together. They basically revitalized this entire town and they set politics aside and just rolled up their sleeves and did some really incredible things together. And it made me like remember like how America can be can be great and um it was a good example and i hope people can go check out the article because it, it lifted me up a little bit that's awesome great shane over to you all right i've got two so that's the upside i don't know that either of mine is as, as warm-hearted as brandon's last comments and i you know one is uh someone I, I believe brandon probably knows i certainly don't know him but a quote from david axelrod who ran the obama campaign uh, yeah, he's a yeah, friend. So he um he said something that really resonated based on, you know, how I feel a bit based on what's going on lately. He said uh, when discussing what happened to Pruitt and Huckabee Sanders, it's totally counterproductive. Organize, run for office, donate and most of all vote. That's how you change policy in a democracy. And I think it's really hard in a political moment when the activist side of your party is pulling one direction and you've been there, you've you've won presidential elections, you've been in the White House, you've had to do the dirty work to come out and be the voice of reason. So I'm really impressed with, with his ability to not, you know, put his finger up and see where the wind is going and do that. Uh, the second one would be, and I think I've done this before, but thanking, I think it's Senator Heidekamp, Senator Donnelly, Senator Manchin for confirming uh, Andrew Wheeler to the deputy job, because I do think he's going to be a phenomenal administrator. I think he's highly competent, really experienced, really skilled. And, you know, we all like to call him a coal lobbyist, but he was a lobbyist, someone who's worked at the EPA, someone who's worked on Capitol Hill. He lobbied for cheese companies, too. So we could call him a cheese lobbyist. But I think uh, the EPA will be in good hands. And I think we all have a lot to look forward to. Great. Well, we'd have him on the show anytime. So, um, Administrator Wheeler, if you'd like to come on, the invitation's always there. And we'll leave it at that for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Julia Piper, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media with Shane Skelton and Brandon Hurlbut. Thanks again to Mandy for being here. Tune in again next time. And that's a wrap. <laughs> so that we ran long, huh? We, we went long. We we long. I feel like there's so much more I didn't say, too, and I'm, like, thinking about it. But That's um, the hardest part. That's hard. Yeah.